Welcome everybody. Today we have a really special guest, Alan Alcorn. You probably know him. He is the creator of the video game Pong, one of the first employees at Atari. So we're going to talk to him today. We have he, He's got some really cool stuff to talk about and I'm really excited to hear from him. So welcome, Alan. Hi, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Um, so one of the first things I wanted to talk to you about, so I read a story that and we were just talking about this, how, you know, history may not always be true, that when you were in high school, you had this interest in tech. You took a correspondence course from RCA and started to work in a TV repair shop. And that's kind of how you learned, like, some of the nuts and bolts of engineering and really started to get interested in it. Is that is that how this happened? It, 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 everything you said is true except for one little detail. Uh, I started it when I was in junior high school, not high school. Oh, and wow. so what was funny was... This is back in the days of vacuum tubes before your time. And, 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 and tubes were always burning out. So the television repairman carried this pretty large suitcase size thing full of vacuum tubes, full of tubes, because 70% uh, of the problems were replacing a tube. But I was still growing up and getting me to lug this big thing around. And then I go into customers' houses and this is this, you know, 14 year old kid and uh, fix it, then fix their TV. <laughs> now you had this interest in it. I mean, it, this wasn't like today where all kids have cell phones and tablets. Was that common for kids to have this interest in technology like that? Where, did your friends have that kind of same interest? No, but I, you know, I grew up in San Francisco. And, and uh, so yeah, I, I was unique, but there, there were some programs, one program at Lux Labs and Polytechnic High School about electronics. I always was interested in how things worked. And the other thing back in, can believe it or not, back in the, in the 50s, they still had our, uh, surplus stores. I mean, these were really World War II surplus stores. Uh, some really neat stuff in there. And you could buy this electronics and, and uh, take them apart. And, you know, and so I was always interested in. And when I couldn't get into that course at Polytechnic, I was disappointed. My dad signed me up for this correspondence course. And I had a neighbor across the street that owned a television repair shop. So, boom, I was in I was in business. Made a made a, made lunch money, made my little bit of money uh, fixing televisions at the repair shop, or fixing radios and televisions. That's yeah. awesome. And then you did this in college. So when you went to college, you actually did this in college to help pay for your college too, right? Right. At the time I got to college, I had I was effectively what you might say was a journeyman repairman back in those days in the television repair shop. You'd have the, a guy at the counter and then a guy in the back. The guy in the back had to be able to fix everything that came by. And I got to the point where I could run the back of the shop. I could fix anything. Now, and that, okay. that, that served me well because when I went to Cal, uh, uh, my father got sick. We couldn't, I was at Cal and uh, I was able to earn enough money to pay my way through. Uh, in a television repair shop. So that was great. Yeah, that's really inspirational to hear people say they were able to do that. You know, even today, I try to talk to students and tell them, like, you, you, I know college is expensive and it's a lot more today, but going to state school, there are ways to make a living and be able to have less loans. So I love hearing stories like that. So you, you, you knew what your major was going to be right when you went to college because you had this interest. You kind of knew, you had at least some idea of what, what you were interested in. Absolutely. I, I wanted to be, I, I knew I wanted to be an electrical engineer. I just wasn't sure what it was they actually did. Now, were you, <laughs> were you a good student? Do you, con do you consider yourself a good student? Like, were you doing well in school? Yeah, I was, I, I was a, 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 a weird student because I, I avoided A's. Uh, I kind of aimed in for a B or a C, so I didn't 
if, if I started getting an A, I'd goof off, you know. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why, and as few courses that really interested me, I, I would do well in. But uh, yeah, so I wasn't—I was not a superlative. I certainly could not get an academic scholarship. No, I was also, but the the football team helped a lot. I was a football jock, and and uh, that managed to get me on the Cal campus. So nice. And so, so when you were in college, you applied for a—you signed up for a work study program, correct? Your sophomore, yeah. junior year, something like that. Yes, yes. About halfway through, college tends to be pretty intense and boring. And it was pretty much a struggle, so I figured, and paying my way, this uh, work-study program at college was great, where you could work six six months and go to school for six months. And I figured the plan was I'd earn enough money uh, in that to pay my pay my college tuition. And uh, it didn't quite work. I pissed away the money as fast as I made, <laughs> but. but out to be super super because all of a sudden now I'm working with actual real engineers at Ampex, a real top-notch company, and I can actually see what it is that engineers did, and uh, I liked it. So I went back with a renewed focus back to college. Like I'm taking that course now. Was I'm this gonna... like an internship? Were inter was that kind of thing like encouraged back then? Because now we're huge in internships, but it wasn't called an internship. It was, but it effectively was. Yeah. I mean, I was actually working uh, in a group at Ampex. Now, uh, now this is where you met uh, Nolan. This is where you met the, Ted Dabney. This is where you met these guys. How did how did that happen? How, in what capacity did you meet those guys there? Well, we were all working in a sub-company of Ampex, a subgroup project called uh, Videophile. And, and, you know, it was great because you get to work with people. Talk about getting mentored with people that invented videotape recording and, you know, top-notch people. But, uh, you know, I, I guess because of the way they hired, uh, you know, you obviously try to hire the best people, competitive, and, and these were all very interesting people with different skills. And uh, we wound up... Uh, starting this video game company so you so you uh meet these guys you're you're finally learning and seeing what an engineering does who were your who were your mentors at this time and influences when you were in college around this time oh gosh uh boy i uh, i know in the college electrical engineering department at cal we're, we're really good uh, i don't know if i took a course from david patterson but i did take a course uh, in fields and ways, uh, forget his name, but but uh, he wound up starting the computer science department. Uh, uh, he wound, wound up being the, the president of Caltech, uh, uh, and and uh, Everhart, Tom Everhart, and uh, yeah, it was uh, this was this was great, and 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 there was a, a course. Computers were 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 big monster machines at that time. But Cal, uh, at Cal, they invented the, the, the electro-engineering program called SPICE, which was the electronic analog computer uh, uh, simulation. And uh, that was, and so when I took the uh, upper division course in uh, uh, equations, linear equations, linear analysis, they compressed the normal course into like three or four weeks and then we were uh, people had to use his computer program to do the work, mainly to debug. We were kind of like uh, beta testers nice. uh, for the program. So that had its good and bad points because I mean, like, I hey, wait a second, you know, when I go out there, I'm not going to. Ampex did not have 
uh, controlled ADA CDC 6400 to run this program on. You know what I mean? Yeah. A little bit ahead, but hey, uh, I managed to squeak through. So you're you're at Ampex, you graduate college, and uh, you know uh, Nolan approaches you for the gig at Atari, which is really called Sysergy at the time. How how did that happen? How did why did he why did he come to you? Well, uh, I was cheap. Uh, that's <laughs> number one because uh, I was 20, 40 years old, and you know I I, I, I but I think I, I, to answer your questions, two things were going on. One. Ampex was suffering its first financial setback, so life got tough at Ampex. Mm -hmm. But the other thing was, because of my youth and recent graduation from, from Cal, in fact, electrical engineering technology was changing rapidly under our feet, these digital circuits. And I started out as an analog engineer. I really thought this digital stuff was just ones and zeros and wasn't as interesting as analog uh, linear circuits and stuff like that. Uh, but I was force-fed that programming and digital circuit analysis, so I got my degrees in uh, uh, electrical engineering and computer science. And uh, so I, I was really handy at using 7400 series TTL logic, uh, but I still was an analog, trying to do analog stuff because I knew both of them. Uh, uh, so I was, I guess I was skilled in that sense. And, and so Nolan picked me because I was cheap. In fact, he offered me a thousand dollar a month salary. Uh, I was making $1,200 at Ampex at the time, but he offered me 10% of the stock. And I figured that meant nothing because I had a Berkeley an anarchist that what's that going to do? Uh, <laughs> hey, it'll be fun. This, this is a fun bunch of couple really nice, great guys. And uh, we'll have fun, and, and that proved to be true. We did have fun, we worked hard, but we, we never took ourselves that seriously. Now, were these startups common in this Silicon Valley area at the time? Like, I know this was no tech tech uh, dot com era. Like, was this a common thing back then? No, no, not, not at all. In fact, Larry Ellison spun Oracle out of Ampex, uh, but it was really, it was so uncommon that uh, 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 Charlie Steinberg, who was the division head later to become the president of Ampex, sat Nolan down and said, son, you're making a big mistake, you know, because this was the end of the day, the, still the era where you took, you got to be an electrical engineer, got your degree, work at Ampex or Fairchild or IBM your whole life and got a gold watch and a pension and that was it. And you threw that away. I mean, my God, you just can't do this. And, uh, and uh, Nolan persisted and I was young. And out of Berkeley, you know, like the world's going to come to an end at some point soon anyhow, so let's just have fun <laughs> and do this. And, sure. uh, you know, uh, uh, I guess that's why he, he hired me. Uh, uh, and I was able to, uh, I just happened to have all the skills necessary to, to do the job. Now, you're the first considered employee. You get $1,000 a month. You now have 10% IP in the company. I mean, that's that's pretty good thinking about like me if I was going to the Silicon Valley right now and getting that. But back then, wow, that's, that's really interesting. So, so his first project for you, the first project they come up with is to develop this game Pong. How did how did that happen? Yeah, uh, I think, well, the, the, the truth and what I was told, the truth was that Nolan had done this prior game called Computer Space mm -hmm. and licensed it to Nutting Associates and received royalties from that game. And he and Ted put it into production at Nutting Associates, but they were never employees at Nutting. 
And uh, they, they didn't agree with how Nutting ran their business. And Nolan had this belief that video games are going to take over the world. We all thought he was crazy. <laughs> uh, and uh, But okay, so uh, he spun out and... Uh, uh, and, and hired, uh, you know, and, 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 and uh, I guess the rest is history. So you, you come up, so how long did it take you to, to put this game together? I th- about a couple of months, couple of three months. Uh, you know, Nolan had done the, the prior game, and, and, and there was a, a, a specific technical obstacle, some, some real interesting tricks had to be done to make video. I mean, here, what the idea was, was a completely digital circuit putting out a completely analog signal. And, you know, so that was uh, uh, kind of unusual. And, uh, uh, and so it took me about three months and, and uh, it was just the crudest prototype. Why he picked that, it was the simplest game he could think of. Uh, and it, to this day, it's the simplest game. And he just wanted me to get it done in a hurry. Uh, but try real hard to get my skills up because I think he thought the real plan was to make uh, a driving game, something more complex. Uh, but and of course, Nolan had seen the similar game at a Magnavox trade show, mm-hmm. and uh, but it was like the movie The Producers. You've seen that movie The Producers, mm-hmm. you know. So if we make a terrible, terrible movie and sell 120 percent or 200 percent of the stock, and it fails, nobody's upset, and so. What's what's wrong with stealing something that we knew was terrible, a ball and paddle game? Uh, <laughs> and so then when it failed, you know, it wouldn't even put it on test. It's okay, throw it away, and then we'll do the driving game. Well, he didn't tell me that. He told me that he had a contract from General Electric for a home game, which meant the part cost had to be down around $15, $20. So I was failing at that point. I had too many parts in it. <laughs> uh, but he didn't seem to care. And the fact that nobody from General Electric who apparently had this contract with us ever came by or called or wrote us a letter and never, never occurred to me this was bullshit. And, uh, and as I developed it, I figured, well, when you first do the thing, you know, it's the most boring game you can think of. It's just one speed, like, duh. So add the speed up, add the angles and a few things just to make it seem to be fun. And, uh, you know, and uh, boom, put it on location and wow. Now, when you're doing this kind of work, working on these projects, is this what, what kind of do you have some kind of method that you work? Or are you just like, I'm here from nine to five, I'm doing this? Or is this like, like what's your work life balance like at that time when you're developing this stuff? Yeah, remember, it was, it was me, Ted, Nolan, Cynthia Villanueva would come in after high school and answer the phones and write letters. And uh, uh, Ted's brother and a couple other people, we had a route of like, 30 or 40 pinball machines in the area. And so we had some people taking care of that. And Nolan uh, and Nolan had a contract with Bally, the biggest uh, coin-out manufacturer in the world at that time. Uh, Bally was very smart, keeping our eyes on us. And, uh, and so Nolan was working on a two-player, uh, uh, a two-player computer, yeah, two-player computer space, which my prototype was made never went anywhere and a pinball machine for for Bally and they gave us a little bit of money which kept cash flow but we had no investors I mean like people think I'll go to a angel no 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 in fact go to the (laughs) banks they wouldn't even give us an account because oh you're in the uh, uh, coin operated amusement business this is the mob uh, (laughs) so no uh, yeah 
Yeah, it was it was it was a it was an interesting. Way. I didn't know you're not supposed to fund the company that way. I, I didn't know you're supposed to have money in the bank to start. And when we got going, you know, there were a few of the first paid in the first half year. The some paychecks you had to run to the bank to get them cash before you ran out of money. All right. So you create Pong, then you start. You actually work on from the arcade to the the home version. Wow. Got yeah. a copy of it. This is my uh, father-in-law's Pong game. And I have the Atari 2600 of it somewhere at my parents' house. As I said, my office is like a history museum of all old uh, stuff. I have so many so many cool little gadgets here. I just love it. Um, but so Sears funds this. Sears sells the home version of Pong for you guys. But around that year, Atari sold the Warner Communications. Now, when it's sold, how does does that change things for you? Like, do you, you have 10% of the company. So does that mean you get a piece of this selling or how does that work out? Uh, yeah, uh, it was, uh, it, 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 it effectively blew my mind when, when one day Nolan comes back from Nolan and Joe come back from talking to Warner and all of a sudden we're bought for around $30 million. It was like, I mean, I, I, I was still ready for the company to fail at any minute. <laughs> I'm sure elsewhere and all of a sudden boom and for the first time because I, I never considered the stock to be worth anything uh, again because there was no venture funding or anything so there was no price on the stock or anything like that all of a sudden I do the 10% calculation of 30 million dollars so, holy shit you know this is a significant amount of money sure. back in 72 or 76 yeah, so uh, yeah it changed things uh, sure uh, eventually Warner uh, put their people in, in play, but that came later. At first, it was great. We had a lot of money and we had uh, uh, better backing and we needed it because we were entering the consumer business, especially with the 2600 and the kind of money needed to fund that operation. You have to buy all the parts, material and everything for all the units you're going to sell in the last three months of the year. So it's a risky business and it requires a lot of cash, a lot of money to do that. And we didn't have that, so that's why we. Did, that's the main reason we did the sale, and uh, and, it, and it worked out great uh, now, for the year or two. Now I saw, I believe I saw this on a, even a documentary that, that was like that. You know, that mid to late seventies, almost into the eighties, the Atari culture was like seemed like the coolest place in the world to work. There were like people who would potentially be like drinking on the job or just like whatever it whatever it took to get them happy to get their game developed was that is that i mean was it a cool place to work at was it a fun place well, i mean that's like what uh, i see on the outside looking well, in cool place to work started from when we started the company and 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 then when we got big and huge and became part of warner it became a problem uh but when we were smaller you know like a few hundred people uh, sure, the attitude was always different. Remember, Atari was started not by businessmen or investors, but by engineers. And we were young engineers and uh, kind of naive and idealistic. So we didn't, you know, why do we have to show up at eight or nine o'clock and leave at five and have a one hour lunch, which was what happened at Ampex? Sure. You know, look, you get the job done. I mean, I, I'm not a school teacher, you know, and, and you're a great, I hired good people. And uh, let's get let's work hard and get the job done. Do whatever it takes. If you don't have to, sh if you don't ever show up and you get the job done, fine. I don't tell me how you did that. I want to try that. So uh, and then we rewarded. Nolan was always 
great with rewards and, and parties to celebrate our success. And, uh, you know, and we also shared ownership in the company. All the employees had some stock in the company, uh, which became significant for many of the employees when the Warner deal was, uh, was done. Yeah, that's awesome. And pretty, pretty, uh, you know, even when I got into the workforce in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was that culture was still unheard of that it was more about still the nine to five, you know, it, we're finally I feel like at a different point in society. But yeah, it's a uh, that's a that's really like just fascinating to hear. about. Yeah, so, so it was fun to work and 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 it was we became kind of uh, Atari because Silicon Valley, all these semiconductor companies and uh, and military contractors, and all of a sudden we were the most fun place to work. I mean, think about it. When when Steve Jobs was working for me, his buddy Waz would come over at night and play the video games uh, that we had on the production line, the arcade games, uh, and uh, that was great because he test the games. <laughs> and, and he was fun to hang out with because uh, these guys were really sharp, and uh, I learned from them. So you got so you actually you hired Steve Jobs at Atari. You you got to know Steve at both of them, uh, Jobs and Wozniak. Uh, now they pitched the Apple One to you guys, right? Well, the Apple Two. I mean, they oh, only yeah. they had the Apple One. They only built about I think two hundred of the Apple Ones, but the real product. The company was going to be based on the Apple II, and you guys kind of helped. You helped them a little bit with, like, they yeah, borrowed yeah, some yeah. of your equipment, well, bounced ideas. They were cute. They were harmless. I remember. I still remember vividly. I hope it's real. Uh, uh, sitting Waz down one afternoon for a little bit to give him a little chalk talk about how to do color, NTSC color with digital circuits. You know, uh, breaking all the rules of uh, how it's supposed to be done. But uh, using the face shift technique, uh, and uh, you know, he picked it up, boom, and ran with it. And that became the high-res color uh, and all the stupid artifacts that are there. I take some credit for that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So I have in my office at work, not at home, I have this computer, an old Apple II GS signed by Waz, that my mom waited like six hours in a line to get this, <laughs> carrying a computer <laughs> to get it autographed by him. And everyone that comes into my office now, it's like the best conversation piece. They're like, oh. what is that? I'm like, that's signed by Steve like, Wozniak. They're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Like, it's just, you know, great, great set of these. Funny to hear stories about those guys. Okay, so at Atari, you, you create this product, Cosmos. Eventually, Atari decides they're not going to produce it. They're not going to publish it. Is this was this the end? Was this why you decided to 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 move on? Ultimately, ultimately, yeah, yeah. I mean, not just because of Cosmos, but but it was clear that uh, uh, Atari, under the Warner management, Ray Kassar, uh, uh was not going to release any new products. Uh, it was bizarre because uh, at Atari, every six months or so, we put a new product out and, and, and we'd risk the company. The whole computer to consumer game division could have killed the company if it didn't work. Uh, you know, uh, and we took all these risks. In fact, have you ever heard of the game called Video Music? No. Uh-uh. Ah, look that one up. And that was a product right after we introduced the, 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 v, the, home, the home version of Pong. To great success, uh, this was the thing that turned your your stereo, your television, into a light organ for your stereo. Oh wow! And uh, it was such a flop. <laughs> <laughs> that, maybe yeah, that's why yeah. I haven't heard about it. Yeah, yeah, that's why you haven't heard of it. But it's become a collector's item. 
because uh, I've still got one in the box. Every, oh, wow. We sold all the employees at a great discount to get them out of the out of the warehouse. Yeah, I was I was born in '79. I started playing. I think my parents bought me the I bought the Atari and Magnavox Odyssey too when I was like three or four years old. So '83, '84, probably when the crash happened. My parents weren't wealthy or anything, so I think they could actually afford them because I think everything was discounted. And that's that was my introduction to the video games. But I played Adventure and all all the game, all of them, just as yeah, classics well, as a kid. Answer your question. Uh, so here we were, the, the, the question you have to ask yourself was why was this company, which now had sales of over a billion dollars a year, afraid of introducing a product? Mm -hmm. If we introduced the Cosmos and it was a complete flop, it would be a, a pimple on the butt of the yeah. balance sheet. It would be nothing. And, uh, and, 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 and we, we had broken some ground on, on a bunch of on new, some radical technology in that case. It was embossed holograms, uh, you know, the stamped holograms. We had to invent that to make this product possible. And uh, they just wouldn't sell it. And I believe it was because the fear of introducing a new product that didn't succeed, the embarrassment, uh, that's all I could think of, uh, would, would be so great. Let's just not introduce anything and we won't have that embarrassment. And, and I tried to explain to Ray Kassar and, and and those Warner guys that that in, in Silicon Valley, if you don't obsolete your own product, somebody else will. Life is not static; things move very very fast. And because you didn't do so, well, that'll that'll cannibalize our existing market. Yeah, yes. Well, if you don't, but if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it. I mean, it's right. You're those guys. No, yeah. you're you're right. So when you leave Atari, are you you get some kind of package deal are you could you could you have retired and been done working do you get that kind of deal from atari when you leave or no it's like i was we were very comfortable but there was no way i was going to retire at that age my yeah. goodness i was uh you know barely 30 years old uh you know and uh so uh so yeah so there was some money but but the excitement i mean uh the the con the non compete contracts that we had with Warner expired in 1983 in November, and uh, by the beginning of '83, I remember some strategy meetings in Nolan's mansion, up in Woodside, in a conference room with engineers, lawyers, and uh, accountants and whatnot, uh, plotting out a strategy to come up with about four or five different companies. Uh, one of them, a direct competition to Atari Coin-Op. And it was like flouting in the face of these guys saying, dare them to sue us because it would look so so bad with Warner suing the founders of their own company. Anyway, uh, so yeah, so, so we had fun. Uh, I mean, back in those days here, you had this emerging digital technology which we realized had the power to change the world. And we were skilled at artists at making this stuff. So it was like, where do we want to go? Where do we want to do? And so one of the companies that came out of that was ETAC, the first in-car navigator. And uh, uh, that was exciting to work a little bit with those guys. Uh, I had a company called Kuma that vended software from a kiosk into a cartridge. And... Uh, you know, and uh, so the excitement of being in Silicon Valley at that time, uh, uh, and now we had, now we attracted venture capitalists and uh, money was not an issue.
So you become an Apple fellow at Apple, 86 to 91. You're working on some cool technology, MPEG, quick, I mean, just groundbreaking stuff. Was it, so I guess my first question is, was it weird going to them after you, like you knew Wozniak and Jobs and now Jobs was gone. Like, was it, was that weird at all? No, not, not at Apple at that time. You gotta understand Apple at that time, I worked for Larry Kessler mm-hmm. directly, then Jean-Louis Gasset and then Scully above that. And here you're working with some of the uh, 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 people. You know, I'm just a, a video game guy out of the, out of the, out of San Francisco, and here I'm working with some of the smartest people in the world. So no, it was it was an honor to be in that group, and being in that group as an Apple Fellow, I could sort of could do anything I wanted, and I had the power to to disrupt technology, to disrupt industries if possible and to change it. And, and the idea of an Apple fellow was to come up with a new category of products that, it, that Apple could uh, uh, profit in. So that was fun. I mean, wow. Yeah, it was great. No, I didn't, that wasn't the problem. And I think it was fun because I could entertain the uh, other engineers with the uh, weird stories, you know. Now, okay, so you're at Apple, you leave Apple, you go and found this company, Silicon Gaming, which created the first multimedia slot machine, which is, again, like, it seems like everywhere you go, you're just, like, producing gold, like, gold. <laughs> like, that's that's what we well, used to say in consulting. Like, it, where well, someone, certain firms, everything they touch turns to gold. Like, you're literally, like, creating some pretty innovative stuff. Uh, that's because, I, 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 oh, they weren't always innovative and they weren't always successful, okay? Uh, it, it, even though... Uh, the silicon gaming slot machine changed that industry. We managed to not really profit from it too much, but it was an exciting run. No, uh, because of that, I guess because of the, uh, the the success I had with with Pong and Atari, it enabled me. I got jobs where I had the the ability to disrupt industries. So specifically, the slot machine company. One day, I get a call from David Morse. He's the angel that started uh, Amiga. And, uh, uh, and 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 uh, and he called me up because he because he felt I was the right guy. He says, "Let's start a slot machine company." And uh, you know, I went off to Vegas to see a trade show to get a little bit of handle of what the business was about, and uh, put wound up putting a, 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 one of the best teams I ever had together to uh, create this new platform and to to change that industry. And that was exciting and fun because that industry was very closed because you have to have a license from the Nevada Gaming Control Board. You have to be approved, sure. and it's very difficult to get in. So the competition is kept out. They have this wall around it. So these guys, I'm looking at these slot machines. This was in the 90s, and these were 80s-era video game, if that, <laughs> Z80s, uh, running these reels behind glass. And they were convinced that, uh, uh, video pinballs were a failure because they built one, did a bad job, and it was a flop. So, so I come in with this radical concept, uh, and uh, it was a hoot. It was really a hoot. And we had the best part was we had a lot of support from the Nevada Gaming Control Board because they wanted to see uh, innovation and excitement in that business because they make money off of these machines. Sure. So they were they were uh, helpful, and we had to get the law changed. We actually had to have the Nevada game. The laws at that time said the program had to be stored on a read-only memory chip because that can't be cheated. Uh, <laughs> so we we introduced them to this thing called pub, uh, 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 RSA public key cryptography, 
modern cryptography and to give some real security to the machine and uh, educated the Nevada Game Control Board, got the rules changed, and, uh, and, and then we managed to, a complicated series of business learnings, <laughs> managed to screw the whole thing up from our standpoint. And uh, Bally walked away with the patents and whatnot. So I didn't make much money out of that one. So after that, you create this company, Zoe. You you help create a company, Zowie, Zoe, and you guys create a electronic toys that users can animate and work with a playset uh, for a PC. That was acquired by Lego in 2000. Again, another successful venture. And it seems like all of your companies, you kind of you work there, you do something innovative, and you're like, I'm off to the next project. Why right. do you think? Do you think is that that's like what drives you? That that chance of that new innovation, and once you kind of do something in a company, you're like, it's it's time for me to do the next thing. It's like dogs and puppies. I like puppies; they're really really cute. But when they get to be big and old and smelly and dirty, I don't like them so much. Yeah. So you know, it's much more fun mm-hmm. uh, uh, being, you know, changing an industry, doing something that people tell you can't be done and do it and do it. And once it gets done, it, it's a different kind of a process, yeah. you know, making money and uh, keeping this stuff going. And then it becomes much harder to innovate, much, much harder to innovate in a successful company. Sure. In a, in a startup. In a startup, you have to innovate or you die. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a big company, if you innovate, people attack you. Uh, how the corporate politics works, but uh, but I've worked in big companies, and again, it has its pleasures because I, again, I work with some of the smartest people uh, in the world. <laughs> so, so after two thousand, what happens at that point? Is this? Are you like you know what? I've been in this industry for thirty years. I'm I'm gonna just tinker around. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna retire. What what happens after that? Yeah, for me, for me, uh, uh, I, I started a few companies. Some not as successful. One of the one of the fun ones was uh, integrated media measurement, uh, where we used uh, we competed with Nielsen measuring television and radio consumption using a cell phone and monitoring what people really listen to and watch because we realized that Nielsen data was very skewed, very distorted, and uh, and made the made the technology work, and uh, but. It didn't. So I, I enjoyed that. But uh, after that, you asked me, to, uh, you know, I, I yeah, I, I've had some medical issues and uh, and uh, I, I've got a comfortable life and I've invested in a few companies. So, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've kind of been there, done that. And I like I'll, I'll give advice to friends and mm-hmm. startups. But uh, I really, uh, you know, it's uh, it's the chicken and egg. It's the ham and eggs breakfast. You know, I want to be the chicken. I don't want to be the pig. <laughs> <laughs> so reflecting back on everything you've done, what was your what was your favorite experience? Well, I've had. God, I, 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 I guess I guess the I'd have to say the introduction of the Atari 2600 at the Consumer Electronics Show in uh, in Chicago. Was it Chicago or Vegas? I had it in Vegas. Yeah, yeah, and and because it was a surprise uh, to the industry, uh, and we really set out the product that defined that home arcade cartridge business uh, console. And and I and I brought made a point of all the engineers that worked on that project got to go 
and, and experience that and to, to see the astonishment of the customers coming by to look at the product. And, uh, and the best part of all was the competition, Fairchild and National Semiconductor, who were trying to compete with us, mm-hmm. uh, had weak offerings and were stunned by what we had put out. And, uh, and we managed to hire some of the best engineers from National at that point. And uh, one of them, one of them walked by the National booth, and the guy said, "Hey, get in here, Jeff. Uh, uh, you got to bring that uh, prototype computer-based system you had out there. Atari's beating our brains in with that thing." And the guy said, "Excuse me, but I'm I quit, and I'm working for Atari. <laughs> Goodbye." <laughs> so uh, that was that was pretty exciting when you when you uh, really sense that you've. Uh, 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 impacted the industry. And I've had similar experiences with the slot machine because we, we had a revolutionary product and able to show that and to, uh, you know, to be the smartest guy. And I was the smartest guy in the business for a while because I was the only guy in the business. He started a new kind of a business. And uh, so it's, it's fun. I'm, I'm very fortunate in that regard. So what kind of, what quality do you think it is about you and Nolan and other guys you've worked with who are just like the thought leaders like you guys created like this great stuff jobs was any of those guys what is it what what do you think sets you guys apart from people who didn't make it was it was some of it just luck like sheer luck that you invented it at the right time and had this idea or was there you know you think it was your background like your interest in engineering or just being able to have a group of you together like you and nolan bouncing ideas off each other like what is it do you think really led to a lot of the success you had well i think what you just said a group of good guys bouncing ideas off of each other rather than a top-down kind of old-fashioned structure where ideas emanate from the top and trickle down uh here we had a very flat organization and the group of people for example you know uh uh Apple spun out of Atari in a, in a sense, you, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and the idea of not sharing secrets, you know, like you, you would show off and Waz would show off this great stuff. Uh, and, 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 and you try to one up somebody with better ideas. And so <laughs> the ability to have free flowing ideas, uh, uh, I think is very important. Mm-hmm. And, and then to be steeped in the technology, all right. And but understand the market. That's the other thing that Nolan brought to the picture with Atari was he understood the coin operated business because as a high college student, he ran an arcade. So he understood the pinball business and that whole thing. And boom, we could just slip this product into an existing channel uh, where Jobs and those guys, you know, they understood Waz understood computers really well. But back was computers were big machines that were, you know, and Waz brought it down so he could play with it. <laughs> and that was his motivation. And Jobs thought and said, no, there's a business in there. And, uh, and unfortunately, I, I thought he was nuts. <sighs> he offered me founder stock in Apple. And I, I said, look, I got enough wallpaper. I'll take a <laughs> computer. So I have an Apple, uh, one of the first Apple IIs. <laughs> wow. And to think you could have Apple stock, but you know what? You you can't make, not every choice is perfect. I mean, and you did, you know, <laughs> that's crazy to think about. So do you ever, you know, you, you're, these guys you're friends with, do you guys ever just like hang out and talk to, are you still like, you still talk to any of these guys and just get together and like, 
BS about like the cool stuff you guys did. Like it's pretty. Well, no, 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 no. I, I just had lunch with uh, Steve Mayer the other day. Uh, Steve Mayer was the guy who really came up with the 2600 architecture and uh, was one of the more creative people. And he's been a good friend since Jesus, since, since the seventies. Uh, so, and I see, I see Joe Keenan now and then he, he and, uh, yeah, we do get together and uh, swap lies about the old days. Sure. <laughs> One up each other about what you did and stuff. Yeah, that's sure. hilarious. That's great. Uh, yeah, that's sure. awesome. Um, laugh about. It. I mean, you gotta understand now. The money is just. When we sold Atari to Warner, it was like thirty million dollars, and it was like all the money in the world. It's the biggest deal. Oh my god. Sure. And that's like the budget for the lunch of the opening day. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's, it's, uh... it's crazy. Uh, uh, and to some extent, it's more difficult. I, I looked at a company, Jesus, a few years ago with a friend of mine, and they were building a device that was going to be taking virtual reality for movies, for virtual stuff, and 360-degree uh, stuff. And these company got an initial funding of $30 million. I'm thinking, holy moly, $30 million, I'd be in Puerto Rico, I'll write you a postcard <laughs> I mean, you got to have a little bit of lean and hungry, you know, when you got that kind of money in the bank. I don't know how you motivate. I don't know. I, I, so do you think it's cool that people are now, like, interested in this history? Like, is that like a – are you like, wow, this is I awesome. find it a little, a little strange, frankly. I mean, because it's something that, that – it's just something that I happened to be around and did. And it's so bizarre. It never occurred to me that any of this stuff at the time would amount to anything, yeah. you know. That it seems to have amounted to something. One of the funnier things was uh, Pong, the game Pong, has been accessed, inducted into the Museum of Modern Art collection. Oh, and wow. There was actually about a, a three or four month period where they had it on display at the museum, and I went back there. And my daughter graduated from RISD, uh, art college, and got a degree in that. And I said, Well, shit, I'm at the Museum of Modern Art. <laughs> I didn't engineer, have ever expected to have something, you know. I mean it that's was, awesome. Uh, there are there's esport competitions in Pong like right now. Like it's it's still like I just saw I just saw Alienware yeah. tweeted the other day like still the greatest game of all time and it was Pong. <laughs> it's like it's hilarious. Like Jesus Christ because Christ. Uh, Pong was just thrown together in a big hurry and there were so many errors and mistakes in it. We just shipped it because we had to get it out there. Getting it out there was more important than making it perfect and so. It's so imperfect, and to hear people think about it still, it just, yeah, it 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 blows my mind that uh, uh, that. In fact, it's kind of sad in a way when I write a letter or a memo. I, you know, I'll type. I'm a very very bad speller, and you type in Ampex, and spell checker goes, "What's that?" <laughs> yeah. Whereas you type in Atari or Pong, not a problem. And yeah. it's Just like wow. That's yeah. weird. <laughs> that now, so weird. because you created this game, your name is associated with everything about it. Do you, is it like when you create music or a movie? I mean, I know things were, games were nothing back then. So do you get like credited? Do you get, do you still like get like royalty or anything from Pong whatsoever? You, no, no, at least fact, you get credit as the, the, the creator though. No, in fact, in the, in the beginning, uh, uh, we 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 didn't get any. We didn't go for patents hardly at all, because yeah. uh, it just was more important to get out there and make money. What good is patent by the time you get the patent granted? And sure. In, you know, it's just so uh, so. Yeah. Uh, no, there's there's no no royalties. It's just uh, 
it's just fun to have done it. So are there any cool technologies that you think are like big now? Like what, do you, what are you interested in now? Well, I, I think, I still think the virtual reality stuff mm-hmm. is so appealing because of the combination of technologies. Uh, it's just unfortunate it doesn't seem to have the killer app. There's no game for it. That's the problem. Yeah, there's not a killer app, and they and you keep putting old wine in new bottles, and mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily work. Uh, so yeah, I I, uh, I kind of like uh, uh, yeah. I think quantum computing. I I, I I enjoy the physics of that, and uh, and and and, and trying to keep track of that, and seeing how that's impacting, and and keeping trying to keep track of what they're doing, and Silicon technology is just is remarkable. So, uh, but uh, and, and I guess the whole explosion of the internet and, and, and the idea of these videos and things, sharing them, uh, I you know, never foresaw that. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a it's a remarkable and little scary world that we live in, where t- technology is outpacing our ability to understand it or control it in yes. society in positive and negative ways. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, uh, we live in, we live in interesting times. That's, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree there. So I just have one final question for you. If you were going to tell, talk to a group of high school kids or college kids and they said, how do I, what do you, what advice do you have for me in life in general? What would you tell them? Gosh, from my standpoint, would be to just ask questions and explore and try things, you know, and 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 hopefully have a passion for a product or technology or industry uh, that 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 you feel passionate about that can help drive you to focus on that area. And 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 if you have a broad range of skills, and I was lucky to uh, to acquire a broad range of skills, some that I didn't even want to acquire, uh, that when confronted with the opportunity with Nolan, who understood the marketplace, was able to just, boom, put out, uh, you know, uh, do something. And all of a sudden, you're, 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 you've got a tiger, we had a tiger by the tail. It was growing so fast and outstripped our abilities to whatever. And we just learned by trial and error. <laughs> well, look. So, yeah, I'll just enthusiasm and keep trying. Alan, you said a lot. A lot of, and this is just like, you, you really seriously like blow my mind. The stories and stuff that you have to talk about is so cool and fascinating and interesting and historical. Like it's, it's going down in history. Like it is, it's, it's, I'm teaching it to my students. It's amazing. Like I, I just appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Happy to do it. Happy yeah. to do it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So we're, 